Well, I'm really thankful to be here, and I'm really uh, happy to be here, both uh, to bring the sermon tonight, teach God's word, and uh, proclaim the gospel and point us all to Jesus, but, but also being here more generally, being in Columbus with our family. Um, you know, I'm not going to spend time tonight sharing my story. Uh, it, it matches up to New Life's story of the last year and a half, but it's been wild. And for God to set us down in a, uh, in a good space, it says that, you know, in Scripture that God has made the, the boundary lines to fall to me in pleasing places. And if you feel that way in your life, um, and if you have a season happening in your own life that is really full of turmoil and stress and the opposite of where boundary lines seem to be falling to you in pleasing places, that's, uh, we, we should have a cup of coffee. We'd get along. <laughs> There's been a long season, a challenge, and, and this has been a really great two months here, getting started. Um, I, I'm just happy to be here. I'm thankful, and I'm, I'm excited about the East Campus. And so I just wanted to say something about the East Campus um, as we get ready to open our Bibles. You should all come. <laughs> all of you. Pastor Steve, all of you. You know, um, I'm, I'm thankful to be joining a church family that has an interest in multiplication and in the propagation of the gospel through the reproduction of local bodies. And church planting is something I've been involved in my entire uh, ministry uh, ever since my first weekend at Moody Bible Institute. And I went and got the books of um, a couple of books. One of them was uh, from Willow Creek and one of them was from uh, another church. And I read these, these stories at, at that time, just 20 years ago, some, some churches that God had started God, people had started, God had blessed, and they were, they were flourishing. And I, I've kind of gone on different routes with that. And I know that you all as a church have gone on different routes with that and are now in a, in a situation where the, the, the leadership of the church is, I think, wisely moved towards planting campuses. That is a, it's like a church in a place, but it's still part of new life. And, and I think that's beautiful, and I'm excited to be a part of that. And so if you live out east, I'd love to meet you at, at a point in time. I'm having a really good time talking and interacting with the people who are already part of that east core group. And uh, did I mention I'm happy to be here? Yeah. Well, one thing about this is I am just amazed at how it feels like being a new kid at school, being a new pastor at New Life for me. I went back in the middle of... Sixth grade to fifth grade. I went six weeks of sixth grade, and they're like, you know what? This isn't working out for you. And I went back to fifth grade. And I remember that first day, walking in, in the middle of the first quarter, to a new school in the town next to us. And there's nothing really wrong with me now. There was nothing really wrong with me then. But I, I, I just had a, you know, I should have stayed back. And so I stayed back late. That was a really awkward first day. I felt like my head on a swivel. I can still remember how, how I felt that day. I've enjoyed so much coming on board here. Everybody makes me feel very welcome, everybody. And yet, there's certain things that have kind of come on the slate. Like, well, that better go right. <laughs> this first meeting with the folks on the East Campus, you better not mess that up, TJ. Like, that would be a bad thing. If a first meeting with these people who are part of this team and, oh, they all hate you. <laughs> I mean, 
that's not good. And that would be the same thing here. And I, I just have to confess, like I, I planned and prepared this week. I, I did some things that I don't normally do when I preach. I had a bunch of slides, like uh, I had a really long manuscript. And like this is, this is really God's grace uh, to you and, and to me in that, you know, as I worked through some things this afternoon and, and through the day today, I thought, you know what? I'm going to teach the stinking Bible. I'm going to proclaim, I think that I don't mean like it's stinking. I'm going to proclaim the beautiful gospel. I'm going to point people to Jesus and be a pastor. I know how to do that. And so I'm going to cut out all the stuff I don't normally do. And I went up to Linda and I said, I need you to cut like almost all of these slides out. Just the ones that we need, we're going to keep. Apologies to Jane. They were wonderful. But I, I just was trying to do not my normal thing. And I, and I went back and I took my manuscript and I put words and highlighted. And that's what I preach from because that's what I do. And we'll see how it goes. So that song we sang at the end, Forever. That song sings the, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. I love that song. I don't know it really well. I've been listening to it on repeat, um, but it's beautiful, and it lifts up the center of our faith. You know, when we sing songs that are, um, are focused on the experience of Christian life, that's great, but they're not the center. The center of the Christian faith is Jesus Christ and Him crucified, buried for three days, resurrected from the dead, ascended to the right hand of the Father, and our soon coming King. That is what makes a Christian a Christian. They believe that. They find themselves in that. Their identity is in that. It's in Him. And I love that. I love singing that that way in that song. It's a beautiful, focused expression of worship. And, and that's similar to how I want to start this sermon out. I want to point us to the fact that Romans is headed towards a mountaintop. And that's the first blank on your sheet. If you want to fill out the blank, you can. Romans is headed towards a mountaintop that's akin to that song because it's a mountaintop of worship. Romans 1 through 11, Paul um, gives the most detailed description of the gospel in the New Testament. That's doctrinal teaching. It's theology. It's truth. And then in chapter 12 through 16, he pivots to giving ethical teaching, uh, instruction for how to live, and instruction for the body of Christ for how they, as, a, as one group of individual people from different ethnic backgrounds and different classes, um, that they are able to live as one body, one family. And a lot of Paul's letters, most of them, to the churches, they do that. They, they, they start with doctrine and they move on to uh, commands and ethical teaching. But right there at that pivot in Romans, right when he gets to the end of Romans chapter 11, right after the second really difficult passage is in Romans. So chapters 1 through 3 are difficult in Romans. Chapters 9 through 11, difficult in Romans. Um, difficult to understand uh, the difficult truths. Right at the end, after going through both the beautiful mountaintop vistas that we see on the way up to mountaintops, and also some of the more difficult parts and passages and teachings like the ones we'll be in today, he gets there, 
And right after finishing, he just, just wells up into worship. And he says, oh, the depth of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How unknowable are his ways. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. And then that passage you've heard in Romans where he says, I urge you therefore to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, comes right out of that. It's right out of that. We are called to live our lives. We are called to live as expressions of worship out of this well of worship, which is like being up on this mountaintop right at the end of the doctrinal section of Romans. Romans is headed to a mountaintop, a beautiful mountaintop of worship, like being up on the high point of the Rockies where you can look for 360 degrees and just, I've never been there, but I went online and checked it out today on Google, pretty, pretty pictures. You can just see the mountainscape all around. It's beautiful to see how God saves, and it's beautiful to think about how that applies personally. It's beautiful to think about all that's yours in Christ that you have not walked into fully yet. It leads Paul to well up in worship. And so the difficult passages in Romans are on the way to that mountaintop, and it's good, I think, today. It's good to keep that in perspective as we come to a difficult passage. And so um, I will just say, as an aside, when Steve and I interacted about preaching this, this week, he's like, hey, this would be the, a good week for you to preach. Goes, Read the passage. It's a challenging one. If you'd want to do that, and that'd be the week to do it. So, okay. And so, you know, it's 18 verses, beginning with the judgment of God, moving on to the Mosaic Law, and then on into circumcision. What could be better? I mean, what a welcoming kind of passage for the church. And so if you would, join me in your Bibles in Romans chapter 2. We're going to read the passage. Um, Romans chapter 2, verse 12. It picks up and says, For all who have sinned, without the law, will also perish without the law. All who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearer of the law, um, it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their consciences also bear witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? 
You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. May God bless the reading of his word. Now, everything clear? Everybody ready? We good? Pray? Go home? I mean... That's a tough passage of scripture. We're going to talk about the bad news that leads to the good news. Title of my sermon, Bad News and Good News. Uh, This passage deals exclusively almost in the bad news. So I've got this picture we're going to put up on the screen. Um, It's a picture of salt mines. And... It's a dark place. It's not a place you'd want to go. It looks treacherous, uh, treacherous, foreboding, difficult, lonely, and a lot of other negative words that you could think of. I mean, if you had to walk on that as far as your eyes could see, if you just had to go that way, I don't know where you're going to find water. I don't know where you're going to find food. I mean, that is a tough bad place to be. What Paul is doing in Romans 1, 18 through 320, the section that's difficult and deals with um, God's judgment against sin, is, is he is saying to Gentiles, you will be held accountable to God. You'll be held accountable to God according to your work. And he's saying to Jews, This will surprise you, to to his peers, to his peers. This will surprise you, but you will be held accountable to God. Although it's distinct, you will be held accountable to God in the same way. Now, that's part of why Paul was really controversial and not always welcomed among his own people. And there's there's more to say about um, these matters related to the church, um, related to God's law in Israel. We're not going to get into everything even that's in this passage um, because I chose not to s- preach a 17-hour sermon for the 18 verses that we have. Um, you can thank me later. But he, he wants people to know that all are equal in their need of the salvation that is in Jesus Christ. You know, in Paul's ministry, he would go and he would find the synagogue and he would speak to his own people and he would speak to them and then they would throw him out and then he would go and speak to the Gentiles, right? 
Many of us, most of us, are Gentile in this body. And we are the outsiders who are grafted in. Which is funny because in our culture, and as long as any of us have lived in it as it relates to Christianity, if you've, if you've been a Christian for a long time, if you've gone to church since you were little, you totally feel like the insider, don't you? You know, when, when it comes to the end of the sermon, and as I will today, people mention, you know, the preacher mentions, if, if, you, if you are still uh, curious or checking this out and you don't know Christ, you, you may have heard that like 100 zillion times and you feel like you are the insider. But according to Romans and the way that Paul's laying this out in his day, 2,000 years ago, we would be considered the outsider. What he is doing, though, and especially in our verses today, is he's letting the insiders know that being inside probably doesn't mean what you think it means. And you need to know that if you're going to understand why the good news is good. Paul's saying everybody's walking through that world right there as it relates to God. Everybody will be held accountable to God. And that's the argument of the first three chapters of Romans. So it's just if you want to look with me just back to Romans 1, 18 through 20, a couple things just to track the flow of what he's saying so we can understand what our verses are saying. Beginning in um, chapter 118, he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their ungodliness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Something that really popped in my study this week that I thought, that's important, was that when, <laughs> when God's wrath and judgment are being discussed in these passages, they can clearly be connected to how God's creational purpose, how what God made these beings to be and to do, people, these folks who are Gentiles, and then in a little bit, the folks who are Jews, how they are rebelling against and doing the exact thing that is in opposition to God's created purpose for them. And it is because they are doing exactly what they weren't created to do that they are experiencing God's, God's either, either his um, judgment or his wrath. And so here in verse 20, it's, it puts it in the context of creation. It says, people know ever since the creation of the world, they are without excuse. He's saying to Gentiles, God made you to be vessels of worship. Whether you are sexually immoral or whether you are hurting other people or whether you're just a gossip and nasty, you're doing exactly what God didn't make you to do. You're not doing if you are not in Him with the Spirit working in and through you. You're not doing what He created you to do. And so you're under the consequence of that. That's God's judgment. Where's wrath? I thought about that and I thought, well, that makes sense. And I always struggle with these passages. Don't you? I mean, aren't these passages difficult for you? And I thought it was worth saying that that's part of why Paul speaks this way and that God's truth and the gospel work this way. People 
are living in opposition to what we're created for. Then if you look over to chapter 2, verses 9 to 12, picking up right before our text for this morning, going into it, picking up halfway through his thoughts. So he says, there will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. He turns to the, to the Jews and he says to them, you know, and they were, they were real comfortable, the, the Jewish community of Paul's day, that Paul was raised in, that Paul was trained in. He says in, in Philippians, he says, when it comes to the stuff to, be, to do and be with being a Jew, he goes, I was first in my class. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. I was a Pharisee. I was zealous for the law. I was all of that stuff. He knows of what he speaks. And he, he, he says to his own people here, you're really comfortable with the judgment of God that will be expressed against them. You need to understand that the judgment of God will stand against you too. He's writing 25 or so years after the resurrection of Christ. You think about the context and the history. There's a church that grew up out of uh, the early church, out of those first days in Acts, scattered throughout the Roman world. Jews and the Gentiles as well. Some cities had a church that was a mixture of both, and some cities had a church that was primarily Gentile. But that's how the gospel moved out and moved forward. But the Jewish people did not, in mass, embrace Jesus. That song we sang, the one who was, bar- was, was crucified and died, who was buried, and who rose again, ascended, and is our king. He will return as king. They did not receive the king. They continued to not receive the king. And the thing about that is, I'm not going to go to the, the passage, but that is against creational order for them. You know, God gave Abraham promises. And one of the promises God gave to Abraham, when Abraham trusted him in faith, was he said that through you all the nations of the world will be blessed. God's people from the beginning were to image forth who God is to be a blessing to the nations. That's not the story of our Bibles, not the story of the Old Testament, but that's not because it wasn't God's design for them. Isaiah says that from Israel would come uh, one who would proclaim light to the nations, speaking forward about Jesus. And he came. And those that Paul is speaking to who are still Jews are those who were of Jesus' people who did not receive him. God made them to have this king come forward from them 
and then for them to join the king and worship the king and like a flagpole, raise high the banner of the glory of God, who he is and his holiness, his mercy, and all of who he is with their life together and with the testimony that they could have in the world, in the ancient world. But that's not what happened. And so these passages, we're now into our passage. God has judgment against sin for the Gentiles. That's us. That would be us. And he's saying that the Jews in his day would be comfortable with that. He turns to them and he says to them, now the same judgment that God has for them, because they're missing out on their creational purpose, he has for you. You are missing out on your creational purpose. And where it goes at the end of chapter 3, and their famous words is, you know, there's none uh, who is righteous, no, not one. None who understands, none who seeks God. And at the end of chapter, this passage in chapter 3, before it turns to the gospel, the good news, he says, the purpose of what he's been writing is that everyone could know that every mouth would be shut and all in accountability to God. Now let me tell you something. That's some tough stuff. That's some bad news. That's like walking through life across salt mines for miles and miles and no water and no sustenance. It is a bad landscape in which to live. It's uncomfortable to talk about. I, one of my, one of my uh, books that I read in this week is called The Hard Sayings of the Bible. And he talks about these passages, uh, obviously. And right at the start of it, he says, uh, God's wrath is difficult both to understand and to believe. True story. God's wrath is difficult both to understand and to believe. True story. Because for us, is this not out of step entirely with everything in our culture today? Don't we as Christians seriously, honestly wrestle with if we believe it or not? You know, Paul, uh, Peter says in, in 2 Peter 3, he's speaking about Paul and he says, some of the things in Paul's letters are hard to understand. Now, he didn't mean this, I don't think. But, but for us, across the millennia, across History and across the cultures, there are some things that are hard to understand, hard to receive. But if you don't have your feet set firmly that there is bad news for humanity, you really can't appreciate how good the good news is. There's just one verse I want to call our attention to here in the middle of the passage uh, that, we, that we have for this morning that we've read it's, it's verse 16. Paul says that the Gentiles have their consciences, and their consciences uh, give them some of the law of God. It's the law of the conscience. And he says that their conscience will bear witness, conflicting thoughts, accusing or even excusing them. On that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. There is a day coming. I mean, I could, I could think down the different avenues that we all have when we come across passages like this. Believe me, to stand to speak in the realm that will touch on the judgment of God is extremely 
uh, uncomfortable, emotional. It's, it's incredibly hard not to think about various different things that have no profit. I just want to encourage you to take your brain, take your mind, put on blinders and limit your thinking to yourself. I, I want you to know that there's a day coming. There's a day where God will judge based on our works. God will judge based on the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. And I'm using the word are, I mean people. Because it says here, what's just so interesting about this to me, and the reason I wanted to highlight it, he will judge the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Are you comfortable with Jesus? Do you love Jesus? Do you trust Jesus? Are you excited by Jesus? Do you worship Jesus? Because it's Jesus who's the judge. The Apostles' Creed goes back, 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 back in history to, to, to the early second century and what it kind of evolved from. I believe in God the Father, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ. I believe in the Holy Spirit. Passage about, part about Jesus in the Apostles' Creed, it says, he was coming again to judge the living and the dead. Jesus is the judge. And that's the landscape but for grace. So if you want to flip your note sheet over, we're, we're going to move from the bad news to the good news. The good news is the grace of God in Jesus. The good news is that the purest message of the Bible, all of it, is that undeserving lawbreakers receive the grace of God. Undeserving lawbreakers receive the grace of God. And I feel good about that. It's not because I've broken, oh, so many laws. It's just when I read these passages about um, sin, or when I come across any of the passages in the New Testament that deal with um, being not what you're supposed to be, I just resonate with them. I just, I just feel like, man, that's so deeply embedded in me. I've received more grace in my 30s. I'm 42. In my 30s to help kind of ship shift and shape my perspective about, uh, about grace than I did in all the rest of my years put together before that. And I grew up in the church. I went to Bible college, and I've been in ministry on and off for 20 years. There's enough in each of us that we can resonate with the fact that we don't measure up. If there's judgment coming, I'm afraid, because that, that's, if it's real and it's true and it goes down to the, the secret heart stuff, I, I just... But the good news is that undeserving lawbreakers, like me, will receive grace on that day. And when Christ is the judge and before the Father, it will be Christ who stands for me. His merit on my behalf. His death on the cross in payment for my unlawliness. <laughs> See? Like getting the first day of school, new kid in class. What is it? What's on, what's on lawliness? I'm in Christ. I get all the good that He has for His people because I am His people. And I will not come under judgment one day where my works will be found 
faulty and where my actions and my thought, word, and deed will be somehow lacking. I will come before a judgment seat and be excused and be redeemed and be announced that I've been forgiven because I trust in the finished work. I trust what we sang about in the forever song. That's what it means to be saved for Christian. That's the only work that counts. That's the only one that matters. Because that's where it starts. There's something really interesting about this passage. And if, if, um, if you can go ahead, Linda, and show us the other picture. Th this is what the landscape is like for someone who's not living in the bad news, but is living in the good news. You know, our passage doesn't really get to the good news, unfortunately. That doesn't happen until 321. But it's coming. And the good news is beautiful. And the, the terrain of being before that mountain, not on that flat, barren landscape, but this, this mountain, and this picture doesn't have it exactly, but I'm just going to say it's, it's just fertile and it's lush. If you're familiar with the story of Pilgrim's Progress and he goes up and he comes to these awesome little places, it's like that, but it's the whole mountain. Life is about being graced upon graced upon graced by God because of the way he works. Having trusted in him, I receive from him. And the activity of the spirit, he works in me. And it's good, and it's peaceful, and it's joyful, and it brings shalom. Do you know what shalom is? Like, it's not just, you know, like, Hi, hola, oh, shalom. You know, I mean, like, it's, it is a greeting. It's a greeting. But shalom is also a concept in the Bible of the deepest, merciful, peaceful, soul-resting place you can be. God gives us that. And trusting in him, if God is kind, you get to walk into that in different ways, turning around different corners, coming up on new vistas of grace that you didn't know about, coming up on new ability to obey that you couldn't have imagined, coming into new security in areas of your life that you just thought you'd always be broken in. Forgiveness of sins and the hope of eternal life is not just some cut and dried wooden thing that we check the box in, do the deal, complete the ritual, and then move on in our life and just try the best we can like everybody else and hope at the end of the day it all works out. That's not Christianity. That's Christianity. It is a beautiful, incredible landscape on which I get to live my life knowing that God is with me. That God is for me. And that that can never be taken away from me. That my sins... Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sins, not in part, but the whole. They are nailed to the cross. I bear them no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Oh, my soul. So, so it's well with my soul. How's that going for you? Doesn't always go so well for me. I will take the grace that Steve 
asked for because the way I've approached this passage is more overview of the whole section and coming back to look at a few things. But it's a lot of verses, and I'm new to it. So I do pray you'd give me grace. It's not how I normally like to approach a text. But having <clears throat> answered a couple of questions, I, I'm just going to touch briefly, and just it's on the note sheet, and you can check them out later. He asks, the, te the text basically asks, Paul says, well, what about God's law and its many advantages for the Jews? And from verse 12 through uh, verse 24, Paul essentially answers his question, you know, there are many advantages for the Jews. But at the end of the day, those advantages are not going to separate them and protect them from being accountable to God. And then someone might ask, well, well, what about the symbol and promise of circumcision under the old covenant? Because that was key. It was key. Going back to Abraham, the symbol of God's promise to his people was circumcision. It wasn't about the action. It was about what it represented. It represented inclusion. It represented belonging. It represented protection. It represented being part of the family of God. And if you look with me at verse 25, he says, well, circumcision indeed is of value. If you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So, if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? And he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who, has, who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. Isn't that confusing? <laughs> what about circumcision? Well, not all who are circumcised really count as circumcised. In the economy of God, it's not about if you got the ritual. It's about if it is real and true and of your heart. And that's what he says in verse 28 and 29. No one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. If you are a blank filler outer, the front of your note sheet was not really good for you. But the back sheet got some blanks for you. My wife will be pleased tomorrow because she loves filling in the blanks. You know, he says there that a, a real Jew is one inwardly. He says that true circumcision is a matter of the heart he says that this work is done by the Spirit, not by the letter. And as I rolled that over in my head and heart this week, just thinking about what he means for, in the context of this passage and for the Jews, I mean, it's not, it's not a great word because it goes on right after that in chapter 3, verse 1 to say, well, then what advantage is it to be a Jew? What advantage have the Jews? It's like he's taken away in that passage all of their advantages. And he goes on from there. So it's, so it's not good news. But my mind kept turning this corner. That the work of God is inward. The work of God is of the heart. The work of God is by the Spirit, 
And, and one on top of that, the work of God produces fruit. It brings shalom and joy. Th that's what he did for me. And I think for Paul, that's what he did for Paul. This, this good news, the grace of God in Jesus, has a great little blasting off point right here from these two verses on circumcision. Paul's saying, you know, the, the ritual will not be the protection from the judgment of God. The reality will be the protection from judgment of God. And on that Damascus road, isn't that what happened to him? God arrested him inwardly. God changed his heart. He did it by the Spirit. He turned him to the finished work of Jesus. Paul saw, he repented, that not trusting who Christ was and who he, he claimed to be, said he was, and that he is king, was the wrong thing, and he needed to belong to Jesus Christ. And when he did, he experienced conversion. That's what, that's what happened to Paul. That's what happened to me. Is this what hap is it what's happened to you? You know, the last little picture on this whole thing of the mountain. You know, we started off, Romans is heading to a mountain where there's worship at the top. Then there's this dark landscape of, of, of what it is to, to not understand and experience the good news. It was dark, it was treacherous. But there's this different landscape of what the good news can bring us into, forgiven by Jesus Christ, having received his inward work of our hearts knowing that his spirit is actively at work in us, having given us grace to trust in Jesus Christ and now giving us grace for every other thing? It's kind of like our salvation can be pictured by being medevaced from somewhere low in those foothills up to the very top mountain peak. He's arguing against the works of the law. I got to let you know on a secret. It's, it's not just Jews who can be all tied up in living based on works of the law. I recognize that deep in myself. I think church people, if we're self-conscious, uh, self we need to understand. We have this propensity too. It's not the way that salvation works. That's not the way that grace works. It's not the way the gospel works. You break your leg. You can't do it at all. Someone finds you, and someone splints you, and someone then gets you in a helicopter, and someone flies you on up to the top of the mountain, and that someone who rescues you is Jesus Christ. And he brings you to the mountaintop where worship is happening, and you get to participate, not having done the work, but being there along with everyone else who has been rescued by Jesus. It's a beautiful picture. The grace of God is good. The bad news is necessary to know, to know that the grace of God is good. So if you are hearing this tonight and it's like, well, that's news to me. What I would want to invite you into is just come on up to the mountaintop with us. Because it's nice up here. There are incredible things to see as far as the eye can see. And it's beautiful there. Come on up. Come learn what it means to belong to Jesus Christ. When, when you pray for and when you talk to someone who doesn't know Christ, just know that's what you are asking them to do as well. It's a beautiful thing to know Jesus Christ.
But for those of us who have been around this for a while and who do trust Christ and who have, I want to encourage you to, to not forget. I want to encourage you, don't, don't forget. You know, we're doing these uh, memory verses through the Romans road. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, if you believe in your heart God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's with your mouth that you believe. Uh, no, it's not. It's with your heart that you believe and are justified. It's with the mouth you confess and are saved. If you don't know him, know him. And that is how you stand. But if you do know him, don't forget that he said, come to me. All you who weary, are weary and heavy laden, then I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I'm meek and humble of heart. You'll find rest for your soul. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. I'll tell you what, there is mystery. There is challenge. There is difficulty. There are hard spots on the road. But don't forget that it's beautiful, that it's good, and that it is deeply true. That this whole thing we're doing here and how it's supposed to spill over into our lives, it's about good news. And that good news can be good for you. I'm going to confess that I think we do prayer partners in the back here on Saturday night. So I'm going to ask the prayer partner if y'all would go and the band if you would come. I'm so thankful to be here with you all tonight. Would you pray with me, uh, just considering what we have heard in God's word? Father, I confess that I am, uh, <laughs> I am unsure every time I speak your word. But I'm just reassured every time that you are the one at work in it. I pray that you cause your word to go forward and be planted in the ways that it is needed for each of us 